Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 14, 2 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. Well, after some further consideration, I want to spend just a little more time with 2 Samuel chapter 9. So indulge me, please, because the reason is that I see in this chapter an amazing God pattern. I see a prophecy developed that has a very direct impact on us. Now, this is on the surface, at least, the story of King David and Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. But underneath this is a hidden message that could not be recognized until Messiah came and the church age advanced. In the Hebrew teaching methods, this message should probably be placed in the sowed category, as it is. it definitely has a mystical and messianic nature about it. And since chapter 9 is a relatively short one, and since I see an important underlying message, maybe even a warning that needs to be revealed to the modern church, I want to take just a couple of minutes to reread it so that we have the full context before us. So open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to reread this chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 9, page 342 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. David inquired, Is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul to whom for Jonathan's sake I can show kindness? In Saul's household there had been a servant named Siva, and they summoned him to David. The king asked him, Are you Siva? And he answered, At your service. And the king said, Is there anyone still alive from the family of Saul to whom I can show God's grace? And Siva said to the king, There is still Jonathan's son with the lame legs. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba answered, He's there in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodavar. And King David sent and took him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodavar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. And David said to him, Don't be afraid, for I am determined to be kind to you for the sake of Jonathan your father. I will restore you to you all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you will always eat at my table. He prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that makes you pay such attention to a dead dog like me? And the king called to Ziva. Saul's servant and said to him, I've given everything Saul and his family owned to your master's grandson. You are to work the land for him, you, your sons, and your slaves. Harvest the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to feed his family. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will always eat at my table. Ziva had 15 sons and 20 slaves. And Ziva said to the king, Your servant will do everything my lord the king commands his servant, although Mephibosheth has been eating at my table as one of the king's descendants. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micha. Everyone living in Ziva's house was a servant of Mephibosheth. But Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He always ate at the king's table, and he was lame in both legs. In a nutshell, King David asks the hired caretaker of Saul's estate if there's anyone left alive of Saul's family. Now at the bottom of David's interest is that more than two decades earlier, he had made a vow before the Lord to be kind to Saul's and Jonathan's descendants once he became king. Inherent in David's question 
is if the, uh, a hereditary member of Saul's family is still alive, why isn't that family member in charge of Saul's estate instead of a Gentile foreigner, a household servant, a fellow named Siva? Now last week we found out that the backstory for this narrative is that most of Saul's family had recently been executed by some Gibeonites in an act of blood vengeance, a, tip, a typical Middle Eastern vendetta for perceived wrongs committed by the former king. Now, even though David was not personally involved with the killings, he did approve them. However, he told the Gibeonites that they must not harm Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And this is because a remnant of Saul's family must live on or the family line would come to an end. Even so, Mephibosheth went off into hiding among the clan of Mahir, part of the tribe of Manasseh that was located on the, uh, uh, in the Transjordan. Now this was a place outside of the official promised land because it was understood that the Gibeonites were not going to quit until they had killed Mephibosheth because it was a matter of honor for them. Well, upon Ziva admitting that Mephibosheth was still alive and well, David ordered that Mephibosheth be brought to the city of David to appear before him. Now, interestingly, Ziva makes it a point to mention that although an heir of Saul's estate was alive, alas, he was a cripple. And in the Bible era, cripples and blind people were despised by society, seen as useless burdens whose afflictions were usually divine curses in consequence of displeasing God in some way. Well, David assured Mephibosheth that despite his lame condition, not only would he be welcomed back into the promised land and even live in the capital city of Jerusalem, but that the king would protect and provide for him. Further, Mephibosheth was was to be given legal possession and authority over Saul's former estate. And in a reversal of fortune, Ziva was to work on his behalf in order to provide for Mephibosheth's family and whatever remained of Saul's descendants. Ziva submitted to this request but he but made it very clear to David that Mephibosheth had been eating at Ziva's table meaning that Ziva as the head man in charge of Saul's estate had graciously seen to it that Mephibosheth was given enough to live and wasn't being neglected now this was actually quite an arrogant and boastful attitude on the part of Ziva because he in no way owned or possessed Saul's former estate. Saul's estate was not his. Ziva merely benefited from it because of circumstance. But it was neither his merit nor legal entitlement to the estate that allowed him to benefit. Rather, it was David's chesed, the king's kindness, that permitted this Gentile foreigner to partake of what rightfully belonged to an Israelite family, Saul's. Now to be clear, Siva had apparently been a reasonably faithful caretaker of the state, of the estate. This wasn't an evil man. He wasn't an enemy of David's kingdom. However, he did overestimate his own position and to a degree misappropriated for himself what was by nature a Hebrew inheritance. Thus, although David put Mephibosheth into ownership of the estate that was legally his anyway, David in no way punished. He didn't even chastise Siva. Rather, it's just that their roles were straightened out. The Israelite Mephibosheth was now the owner in possession 
And Siva, the Gentile, was still a supervisor and still allowed to benefit from the land and the relationship, but no longer as the self-appointed ultimate authority above that of even the hereditary family of Saul. Well, we ended last time by reading a portion of Romans 11. And most of you seem to have made the intended connection, but some apparently did not. What I feel certain about is that what we have here, in addition to a real and literal event, as recorded in chapter 9, is a significant prophecy and God pattern that's been overlooked. We have a pattern that foreshadows the relationship of Hebrews to Gentiles, especially as it pertains to the Gentile church, and a hint of the return of the Jews to the promised land from the Roman exile. What needs to be remembered about prophecy is that characteristically, prophecies happen and then they happen again at a later time, sometimes more than once. Now here's the mysterious connection I want you to see. David is an intended illustration of Messiah Yeshua. Mephibosheth is an intended illustration of the exiled Israelites, or as we say in modern day vernacular, the Jews. Siva is an intended illustration of the Gentile church. Okay. And Mephibosheth's return from his hiding place in the Transjordan to Jerusalem is an illustration of the Jews coming home from being scattered and exiled to foreign lands living under the authority of foreigners. Let me carry this through in a way that may help you to see it better by following the storyline of 2 Samuel chapter 9 and then inserting the prophetic characters. When told that way, here's the story. Israel's king, the Messiah, asks the Gentile church, the temporary caretaker of the Israelite state, if there are any hereditary Israelites left who claim allegiance to Israel's God and thus have rightful land claims. And this is because if there are any hereditary Israelites left, then the Messiah has picked this moment to bring them back to their own land inheritance, which they have a legal right to, and set them in charge of it once again. The Gentile caretaker, the church, who is essentially was essentially assigned the job of taking care of the Israelite estate, but in doing so has also generally held itself aloof over the Israelites, tells the Messiah, the king, that indeed there are natural hereditary Hebrew members of the land still living. However, they're disabled. That is, the church tells Messiah that the Jews are so spiritually crippled, they are so despised in the world, that they are utterly incapable of assuming the role as possessors and owners of what at one time had been their exclusive inheritance. And in fact, it was their crippled state that caused their authority to be held back from them and given instead to a Gentile caretaker. On top of that, the Gentile caretaker, the church, is a little bit offended, a little put off, when after so many years of this arrangement, of the Gentile church lording over the Israelite, Israelite estate and over the Jews, the church is suddenly, out of the blue, challenged by the king, the Messiah. The king makes it clear. He certainly doesn't see the Gentile church 
Ziva, as the new owner of the Israelite inheritance, to the exclusion of the living legal owner, the Jews, even though the caretaker, the church, felt he had earned that privilege, was confident that the king, the Messiah, had intended to give it all to him. So at an unexpected moment, after years of it being otherwise, the Messiah, the king, reverses the pecking order. The king of kings sets the spiritually crippled and formerly oppressed and despised but legal Hebrew landowner over the Gentile caretaker who had overseen matters for many years. The Hebrews who are related to the king are restored to their rightful position and brought back from the four corners of the earth to their own land inheritance as originally promised to Abraham. In fact, simply living in the land, back on their estate, isn't good enough for the king. The Hebrews must also live in their capital city, Jerusalem, next to where the king lives. There, the Messiah, the king, will protect them. He will provide for them. They will eat at the king's table. And as you are probably aware, modern Israel moved back into their land as the legal owners in 1948, but didn't recover Jerusalem until 1967. God intended for them to have both. Just as we see that Mephibosheth was to have both his own estate inside the land of Israel, but also the security and privilege of living in Jerusalem near the king. Now maybe this doesn't impact you as it does me, but I'm going to tell you, I laughed, I shed tears, I got shivers down my spine when all this struck me about this story. But then as I investigated Mephibosheth's future after he was restored, I found even more. You see, this isn't the last time we're going to hear of Mephibosheth in the Bible. Now, since time is short, we're only going to read a few verses of what I'm going to have you open your Bibles to. The context of what we're about to read is that David's own son has rebelled against him now and pulled off a coup. Avshalom has tried to take over the throne of Israel. He succeeded to some measure. David is now on the run. Turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 16. Just a few pages ahead of where we are. Chapter 16, and we're going to read the first four verses. Second Samuel 16. When David had gone a little past the summit, there was Ziva, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a pair of donkeys, saddled and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 pieces of summer fruit and a skin of wine. The king said to Ziva, What do you mean by these? And Ziva replied, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on and the bread and the summer fruit are for the young men to eat and the wine is for those who collapse in the desert to drink. And the king asked, Well, where is your master's grandson? And Ziva answered the king, Oh, he's staying in Jerusalem because he said, Today the house of Israel will restore my father's kingship to me. And the king said to Ziva, Everything that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziva answered, I bow down before you. May I find favor in your sight, my king. 
This is really interesting. As the characters from 2 Samuel chapter 9 appear again to us. And the Gentile Siva, who in a role reversal, remember, was put under Mephibosheth's authority, he comes to King David with offerings and gifts. And he tells King David that he is personally bringing these to him because Mephibosheth preferred not to come by his own choice, almost as a defiance. Rather, he says, Mephibosheth was comfortable. He's not at all honoring of the king's precarious position and need for support and comfort at the moment. But Ziva, who says he values David as the king of Israel, he's here instead. Well, the king gets angry. He's upset. And he tells Ziva, okay, everything that belongs to Mephibosheth, it's now yours. Now, in many ways... This seems to shoot holes in a lot of what I just taught to you. And it especially seems to uphold the doctrine held by much of the modern church that follows replacement theology. The notion that the Gentile church has replaced Israel as God's chosen. God has rejected His favored people. In other words, using the the pattern in the story of David and Mephibosheth as prophetic, we have Messiah telling Israel that since the Gentile church is more faithful to him than Messiah's own fellow Jews are, he's taking everything away from the Jews he had at one time given to them, and instead he's giving it all to the Gentile church. Is this not exactly what many of us grew up being told in the church? I was. Is this not what so much of the church vehemently espouses today? And therefore, it supposedly validates their despising the Jewish people and believing that the Jews have no right to the land of Canaan. Well, it would be pretty hard to argue with if the story stopped there. But it continues. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, something astounding happens. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. Before we read it though, because we're not going to read it all, here's the context. David's son Avshalom is dead. The rebel son of David has died. And thus God's anointed is now restored to the throne of Israel. David is on his way back to Jerusalem when he is met by none other than the lame Mephibosheth. Okay, we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 25 through 30. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He hadn't cared for his legs or trimmed his beard or washed his clothes from the day the king had left until he had finally come home in peace. And when he came to Yerushalayim to meet the king, the king said to him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord king, my servant deceived me. I, your servant, had said, I will saddle a donkey for myself to ride on and go with the king since your servant is lame. But he slandered me, your servant, to my lord the king. However, my lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever seems right to you. For all my father's household deserved death at the hand of my lord the king. Nevertheless, You placed your servant with those who eat at your own table. I deserve nothing more. So why should I come crying any more to the king? The king said to him, Why speak more about these matters of yours? I say, you and Ziva divide the land. It turns out that Siva, the Gentile caretaker, 
Mephibosheth's servant deceived his master and he deceived the king. I think he also deceived himself. Mephibosheth was, properly so, in process of preparing to follow the king, we're told. And to bring him the appropriate offerings and gifts as a show of allegiance. When the Gentile caretaker took everything his master had prepared, presented it to the king as though it was from himself, and then lied and said that the Israelite Mephibosheth basically had no interest in following the king. You see this? Mm -hmm. David immediately saw he'd been duped by the foreigner. But David's solution was surprising and interesting. Okay, he said, split it. You'll both have a portion in the kingdom of God. After all, Siva had been a long-term caretaker of the estate, even though the estate was technically Mephibosheth's legal inheritance. Ziva had elevated his own self-importance, but that was not a disqualifier. Each would benefit from the estate. Each in their own way, the Gentile and the Hebrew, both had a reasonable claim to participation in the benefits of Israel's land and Israel's covenants. Do you see the prophetic illustration and condemnation of what the church, us, has done over the centuries to the Jewish people? And of the Jews' incorrect idea that nobody but they have a place before the God of Israel? as well as God's view of the situation as both having rights. We have deceived the Israelites and we've deceived ourselves. We have told them that they are only welcome to follow their own Israelite Messiah. They can only partake in the benefit of their own legal inheritance if they essentially give up their Hebrew heritage and become as Gentiles. We have been saying to them, you may join us at our table. You may join us in in what is ours, provided you follow certain conditions. The Hebrews were getting ready to follow their Messiah. But the Gentiles came along and wrested away control and made the Hebrews feel unwelcome, disinherited. The Gentiles took the offerings the Israelites had prepared for the Messiah and confiscated the inheritance that had been prepared for the Israelites and claimed it all as our own. Then we went to King Messiah and said, These are from us. The Gentile church. Because the Israelites you put in charge of the royal estate, they don't want to follow you. They really don't want to. But it wasn't true. For a time, the Gentile Ziva, the church, goes back to the Israelite estate and assumes control, believing he has attained his rightful place, that he's earned by means of his own declaration and in consequence of the Israelites' spiritual lameness. But later, the king, the Messiah, finds out from the Israelite Mephibosheth that the Gentile had misled him. The Hebrew Mephibosheth had fully intended on following the king, the Messiah. But the Gentile interrupted the process. He took the gifts. He claimed the inheritance for himself and thus wrongly put himself above the Hebrew, even effectively excluding the Hebrew. Later, after the kingdom had been wrestled back from the rebel, 
And as the King, the Messiah, nears His bittersweet return to Jerusalem, He sees the crippled, the disheveled Hebrew, Mephibosheth, bringing gifts. And He asks him, Why didn't you follow Me? And the Hebrew responds, I was going to, but the Gentile deceived me. He took my offering. Then he lied to you. And then he came and claimed my inheritance. Now I'm not even sure I have a place in the kingdom anymore. I'm not even sure I have a right to ask for such a thing. And the king, the Messiah, essentially says, there's no need for this. Of course you have a place. In fact, you both have a place in the kingdom. You are to be seen as on equal footing. And he splits the right to partake of the estate. Romans 3, 29-30 Or is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't He also God of the Gentiles? Yes, He is indeed the God of the Gentiles. Because as you will admit, God is one. Therefore, He will consider righteous the circumcised on the ground of trusting and the uncircumcised through that same trusting. In our time, the King of Kings has restored Mephibosheth to his rightful inheritance. But the Gentile caretaker is not very comfortable with this turn of events and is struggling with all that it means. Where do we, the church, fit in now that the prophetic has become reality? How do we handle that all these centuries of erecting a wall between us and the Jewish people is now being challenged and dismantled by God? What do we do about all the foundational man-made church doctrines that take Israel's inheritance away from them and give it to us? now that it's so very clear that those doctrines were misguided from their inception. I'd like to think that this is at the core of what Seed of Abraham Ministries and Torah class is all about. I could spend a long time talking about the history of the church as it relates to this story. But I'm going to assume that the reason you're even here or that you're listening is that God's already opened your spiritual eyes to these realities. Okay, let's move on to chapter 10. Just go back a few pages to chapter 10. And we're not done moving around the Bible yet. Sometime later, when the king of the people of Ammon died, his son Hanun became king in his place. And David said, I will show grace to Hanun, the son of Nachash, as his father showed grace to me. So David sent his servants to pass him a message of comfort concerning his father. David's servants entered the territory of the people of Ammon. But the leaders of the people of Ammon said to Hanun their lord, Do you really think David is honoring your father by sending people to comfort you? Hasn't David actually sent his servants to you in order to look the city over, reconnoiter it, and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half of their beards, cut off their clothes halfway up at their buttocks, and sent them away. 
And on hearing how they had been treated, David sent a delegation to meet them because the men had been deeply humiliated. The king said, Stay in Jericho until your beards have grown back and then return. Aware that they were utterly aberrant to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired 20,000 Aram foot soldiers from Beit Rehov and uh, Sova. The king of Maacah with 1,000 men and 12,000 soldiers from Tov. When David heard of it, he sent Joab with his entire army of trained soldiers. The army of Ammon came out and went into battle formation at the entrance to the city gate. The men of Aram from Sovah and Rehov and the men of Tov and Makkah were by themselves in the open countryside. And when Joab saw that he'd be fighting on two fronts, ahead and behind, he chose the best troops of Israel to deploy against Aram. And while the rest of the army he put under the control of Avishai, his brother, to deploy against the army of Ammon. And he said, if Aram is too strong for me, you come and help me. But if the army of Ammon is too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Now take courage and let's be strong for the sake of our people and the cities of our God. May Adonai do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people with him went to battle Aram and they fled before him. And when the people of Ammon saw that Aram had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and retreated into the city. Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. And when Aram saw that Israel had gotten the better of them, they gathered themselves together. Hadadezer sent and brought out the people of Aram who lived beyond the Euphrates River. They came to Helam with Shovak, the commander of Hadezer's army at their head. It was reported to David. So he gathered all Israel together, crossed the Jordan, and came to Helam. Aram deployed themselves against David and fought him. But Aram fled before Israel. David killed 700 chariot drivers and 40,000 horsemen from Aram. And he struck Shovak, the commander of the army, so that he died there. When all Hadadezer's vassal kings saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became their subjects. So Aram was afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. Okay, David has reached his pinnacle in faith and power. Now I spoke to you a few weeks ago in Lesson 12 of our Second Samuel series about how it seems as though after the great Bible heroes have reached their spiritual zenith, that's when they succumb to their evil inclinations. Outside temptations, their flawed characters erupt. Thus what we have beginning with this chapter is a section of the Bible that could be titled The Decline of David. The story here in chapter 10 is about the war with the Ammonites and the Syrians. And we'll look at it in depth. But as a kind of preliminary overview, we can say that these two wars were likely the most serious, the fiercest, the most extraordinarily dangerous wars that happened during David's 40 years on Israel's throne. Israel suffered greatly. The death toll was enormous. And exhaustion was overwhelming because no sooner had some hard-won battle victories over the Syrians been celebrated than the Edomites overran the land in hopes of destroying God's chosen people. These battles and their consequences are told in a parallel account in 1 Chronicles 19. Both this 2 Samuel chapter 10 and 1 Chronicles 19 accounts tell the war history and and typically biblical scarcity of detail. However, there were at least two psalms that were written to express the anguish and distress of these times. And they do add the emotion the inner turmoil 
that's otherwise missing. These psalms are numbered 44 and 60. And I think that it's impossible to go forward studying 2 Samuel 10 without the context of these two hard-hitting psalms. The first one was written by a properly pious member of the Korah clan, a clan of Levites. The second one was written by David. Let's pause and we're going to read both of them right now. So turn to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Follow along with me, please. For the leader by the descendants of Korah. God, we heard it with our ears. Our forefathers told us about it. A deed which you did in their days, back in days of old. With your hand you drove out nations to plant them in the land. You crushed peoples to make room for them. For not by their own swords did they conquer the land, nor did their own arm give them victory. Rather, it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face. Because you favored them. God, you are my king. Command complete victory for Jacob. Through you we pushed away our foes. Through your name we trampled down our assailants. For I don't rely on my bow, nor can my sword give me victory. No, you saved us from our adversaries. You put to shame those who hate us. We will boast in our God all day and give thanks to your name forever. Yet now you've thrust us aside and disgraced us. You don't march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the adversary, and those who hate us plunder us at will. You have handed us over like sheep to be eaten, scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for a pittance. You don't even profit on the sale. You make us an object for our neighbors to mock, one of scorn and derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations. The people jeer at us, shaking their heads. All day long my disgrace is on my mind and shame has covered my face. At the sound of those who revile and insult, at the sight of the enemy bent on revenge, though all this came on us, we did not forget you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps did not turn away from your path, though you pressed us into a lair of jackals and covered us with death-dark gloom. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have discovered this since He knows the secrets of the heart? For your sake we are put to death all day long. We're considered sheep to be slaughtered. Wake up, Adonai. Why are you asleep? Rouse yourself. Don't thrust us off forever. Why are you turning your face away, forgetting our pain and misery? For we are lying flat in the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Get up! Come to help us. For, your sa- for the sake of your grace, redeem us. Let's move on to Psalm 60. For the leader set to Lily of Testimony, a Michtam of David, for teaching about when he fought with Aram Naharim and Aram Zovah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 from Edom in the Salt Valley. God, you rejected us. You crushed us. You were angry, but now revive us. You made the land shake. You split it apart. Now repair the rifts, for it's collapsing. You made your people suffer hard times, had us drink a wine that made us stagger. To those who fear you because of the truth, you gave a banner to rally around so that those you love could be rescued. So save with your right hand and answer us. God in His holiness spoke. I took joy in His promise. I will divide Shechem 
and determine the shares in the Sukkot Valley. Gilead is mine, Manasseh mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah my scepter, Moab is my washpot, and on Edom I throw my shoe. Pelishtet be crushed because of me. Who will bring me into the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? God, have you rejected us? You don't go out with our armies, God. Help us against our enemy, for human help is worthless. With God's help, we will fight valiantly, for He will trample our enemies. Both Korah and David knew something was terribly wrong. Whereas before, nations trembled when the armies of God arrived. Now, they're confident. They're fearless. Whereas in an earlier part of David's reign, the victories were certain and relatively easy. Now the outcome is in question. The Israelite losses were horrible. Both psalm writers had the good sense to pray and to ask Jehovah why it was this way. Has the God of Israel abandoned His people? At the same time, they asked for strength and redemption from heaven because they knew that all victory is God's. It is fascinating, at least to me, that God's worshipers almost to a fault ask if God has abandoned them when bad things happen rather than asking the more logical question, how have I pulled away from you, O God? The Midrash Bamidbar Rabbah says that this daunting episode is a clear illustration of the God principle that whoever a leader of Israel might be, that if he tries to deal with the evil and the rebellious and God's sworn enemies in a kind of tolerant way, he is going to eventually himself suffer as well as the Israelite people will suffer greatly for their folly of a foolishly misplaced humanitarian concern. Thus, while the first two verses of Samuel chapter 10 reports that while David behaved with noble intentions towards the nation of Ammon, his outstretched hand of friendship was misinterpreted as treachery and no doubt also as a sign of weakness. Thus, instead of the results of his peace initiative being what David had hoped for, the outcome was a bloody war that also had much to do with emboldening other enemy nations into thinking that perhaps this was their moment where they could annihilate God's people. When David sought to show support For Ammon's new king, Hanun, he also broke a Torah commandment from Deuteronomy 23.7. So you are never to seek their peace or well-being as long as you live. David's ignoring this commandment proved costly for his nation. But it is instructional for us that this theological error seems to be where adherents to Judaism and Christianity always tend to wander. For some reason, God's worshipers all fall so much in love with love and with God's concern for humanity that we believe we can disregard His other commandments with impunity. We tend to think, especially after several years as 
believers or as leaders of ministries that we now have license to make our own value judgments that supersede those written down for us in the Holy Scriptures. We so trust our own hearts to the exclusion of God's Word that we do what seems right in our own eyes. And then we're shocked and disappointed when things don't turn out as we were so certain they would. Today, our elder brothers in the faith, Israel, have succumbed to that same trap. Over and over, they offer an olive branch of peace to an enemy that only accepts Israel's demise and nothing less. And the result is always more violence, more hatred towards Israel by the world's community of nations who insist on even more unilateral concessions by Israel as the solution. The Jewish community is known as some of the world's foremost humanitarians. At the same time, the Jewish community is despised and reviled with few exceptions the world over. A good portion of the church has taken on a similar humanitarian mantle and often comforts and serves God's enemies while ignoring Israel's plight and all this in the name of following Christ. Pay very close attention to what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 10 as it is but one of several examples in the Tanakh of the results of thinking that our own morality is superior to God's commandments. We'll continue with chapter 10 next time.